You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thank you very much for coming um, to this final session this uh, semester in our uh, research seminar from the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies. You all know Derek already, but because this is being recorded and will be podcast, I give a little bit of a formal introduction. So, um, but before let me say, um, uh, um, when we have occasionally uh, research seminars outside of teaching term during the marking period, the idea is to give colleagues a break from marking or whatever they are doing. So they are everybody is of course uh, very busy at the moment. So um, it's my great pleasure to uh, uh, welcome and introduce uh, to you uh, Professor Darius Komorowski, who is Professor of German Philology at the University of Wroclaw in Poland. Um, since 2005, he has been the head of the Research Center for German Swiss Literature, and since 2017, the co-originator and editor-in-chief of the online magazine CH Studien, Zeitschrift zu Literatur und Kultur aus der Schweiz which he leads in cooperation with Anna Fattori from Rome and Jan Jambor from Preshov. Um, and this already gives an indication that uh, Swiss literature, Swiss culture, Swiss identity discourses are uh, uh, um, really the focus or the one of the major uh, foci of, of Darius' work. Um, uh, uh, he also uh, was head of the postgraduate studies in cultural management in the cooperation of regions of the European Union at Wroclaw from 2012 to 2018. Um, his research focuses on Swiss, cult Swiss culture, relations between local cultural and national identity and history of ideas and notably republicanism and the common good in contemporary German literature. Among his many publications is a volume uh, uh, co-edited in 2004, Die Schweiz ist nicht die Schweiz, Studien zur kulturellen Identität der Nation. And of course, Switzerland is not Switzerland, is a very famous quote uh, from Swiss Identity Discourses, Studies on the Cultural Identity of a Nation. Then his groundbreaking monograph on, uh, up to that point, uh, neglected turn-of-the-century writer Karl Albert Losli, uh, published by Königshausen and Neumann in 2017, Der Intellektuelle im Narrenhabitus Karl Albert Loslis Publizistik in der Nationalen Identitätsdebatte der Schweiz um 1900. And then uh, in 2021, um, uh, a book with, uh, with uh, Van den Hoek and Ruprecht, a very important volume on the return of the res publica on the literary representation of a political idea in the global age, uh, also with an emphasis on Swiss uh, 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 literature, but not entirely. So we are really delighted to have you here as a Hub Fellow, a Hub Fellow connected to the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies, with an ambitious and, and innovative project of applying actor network theory and uh, the, uh, to the study of the role of things in uh, contemporary Swiss literature. And I believe it is from this, uh, from this uh, context that your talk is today, and I just read out the, the, the title of the talk before handing over to you, Derek. Things and Ideas of Community in the Literary Works of Matthias Czocke, an attempt at an ANT-based literary analysis. So thank you very much, and we look forward to your talk. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Jürgen, for this nice presentation, and thank you very much for you that you come to uh, this presentation, and I'm really honored to be here and to have the opportunity to speak to you and to present my uh, project, which is a project in progress, I have to say in advance, so I'd like to share my uh, results uh, for the moment and to discuss aftermath with you what I have uh, presented. So the title of my presentation, as Jürgen said, uh, is Things and Ideas of Community in the Literary Works of Matthias Czocke, an attempt at an ANT-based literary analysis. And I start the turn to material culture that has been taking hold of ever wider circles and disciplines since the 1990s can be seen as a reaction to the social, cultural and political processes that lead to increasing insecurity among individuals. Such was the case at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries in the face of rapid industrialization and an increasing consumer economy which caused the presence of things, of commodities, that was perceived as threatening. Things then act in literature as malevolent, treacherous beings that put people's existence at risk. As Dorothy Kimmich notes, there would probably be no significant modernist writer who disregarded things in their works. It is also modernism that postulated a sharp division between matter and discourse, nature and culture, object and subject. A postulate that, by the way, as Bruno Latour claims, was never realized. The current material turn we owe to ethnology and cultural anthropology, which rediscover things in themselves and propose a new approach to them. Focus on their materiality, the senses of touch, smell and hearing are addressed, which promise a direct access to matter. Things are now booming because they are expected to provide stability in times of great uncertainty caused by the end of grand narratives, François Lyotard, and liquid modernity, Zygmunt Bauman. Things are there and we can rely on them without thinking about them, just as the desk at which we work is available to us every day without being asked. The bed when we go to sleep at night, glasses, credit card or shoes, they are simply there. It is not surprising that these friends of ours, as Matthias Czocke once wrote, also become objects of visual art, literature, as well as theoretical analysis. Studies are published dedicated to individual objects such as pencils, scissors, potatoes, pieces of clothing, rocks and rivers, or even the garbage. On the other hand, climate change and the destruction of the environment provide a new perception of the rule of man as the only responsible subject in shaping his relations with the non-human world. The modern project which presupposed a strict dichotomy, subject-object, culture-nature, thought-matter, should now be abandoned. Things leave the background where they have passively slumbered 
and enter the side of men as acting agents. This development within the arts, literature and scientific analysis prompts one of the foremost researchers of material culture, Bill Brown, from the University of Chicago, to ask a tricky question if we really need a theory of things. Quotation, why not let things alone? Let them rest somewhere beyond theory. From there, they might offer us dry ground above those swirling accounts of the subject, some place of origin unmediated by the sign, some stable alternative to these instabilities, the ambiguities and anxieties forever fetishized by theory. Quotation end. This longing for things as they are, beyond any mediation, characterizes the art and literature of the last two decades. This attitude also corresponds to ethnological or archaeological research, where one wants to go beyond the sign-like nature of things, starting from the premise expressed by Björner Olsen, a Norwegian archaeologist, that only a small part of the material world is read and interpreted in the same way as linguistic statements. Our relation with things are mostly somatic and have a character of unobtrusive familiarity. In the following, I will briefly discuss some aspects of the perception of things that are relevant to my project and then discuss the most important aspects of actor network theory and finally attempt its application in the literature analysis. First, things. In the research about the things, especially in the anthropological perspective, one distinguishes first of all the natural objects like boulder, tree or river, which were found in the nature from the artifacts, which were produced by the people. What distinguishes the two is their relationship to the sign. While the natural objects become sign bearers, but can just as well exist without a referential function, the artifacts can hardly be thought of without their symbolic dimension. The first symbolic attribution results from the function of things, but there is nothing to prevent further meanings from the being assigned to them. Things in our environment are not things in themselves, but things for us, as Karl Heinz Kohl writes. The contemporary examination of things has above all the character of a questioning of tensions that arise between the human subject conceived as active and the dead object seen as passive. In the critical interrogation of men-think rela men relations, recourse is made to the fact that matter is much older than man and that in the original encounter it had to play an active role in shaping man. For example, Michel Serre speaks the following in relation to this primordial and forgotten experience. Quotation, the noise of discourse drowns out what happened in silence. And Serre cannot find anything in the books that would make the primordial experience when matter shaped man conscious and present. On the contrary, the discourse makes that primordial experience disappear. Completely depressed materiality of things ended up as almost exclusively arbitrary feature in a dematerialized discourse. 
one could trace a long path by which discourse has taken he this hegemonic position. A special role falls to Immanuel Kant, according to whom things in themselves are not unknowable to us. The only thing we can experience about things is their appearance. We perceive things as phenomena. Consequently, we are not able to recognize things in themselves, but only the way they appear to us. They are preconceived by our ideas and the thing in itself remains unknowable. But if we consider things only as phenomena, we admit that underlying them is the thing in itself after all. In the 20th century, when things were subjected to intense interrogation, it is noticeable that they are often thought of as inter interwined. Martin Heidegger, for example, sees things as toic, tool or equipment, which are usually available to us in an unconspicuous handiness. However, they do not appear separately, but precisely in a series of relations. The being of tool always encompasses the toic concept, tool whole. To illustrate this, the hammer is related to the nail, the nail to the wooden board, the wooden board to the fence, the fence to the garden or the house, and so on. We live as if our lives were thrown into an interwining with the handy things that determine our actions in an unobtrusive and non-discursive way. Things preserve their handiness only if they remain in a state of unobtrusiveness. A disturbance of the unobtrusiveness causes a different state of their presence. Things then become objects of conscious contemplation. They light up. Heidegger distinguishes between different forms of disturbance. To illustrate the change from a state of unobtrusiveness to that of obtrusiveness can be mentioned, for example, the absence of the thing. This is true when, for example, we cannot find the car keys, which are normally always unobtrusively available. Their absence makes them intrusive for a brief moment because as soon as they are found, they are re-enter the state of unobtrusive familiarity. Things as objects of art are in a similar situation. They then leave the state of unobtrusive handiness and become objects of conscious contemplation. Torn out of the usual context, they shine out, are received obtrusively and discursively. Let us think of Fontaine by Marcel Duchamp, Breakfast in Fur by Merit Oppenheim, or This is not a pipe by René Magritte, where the tension between the thing as it is and its image was particularly impressively thematized. Point number two, Bruno Latour and actor network theory. Latour, one of the most influential researchers of think-human relations, also sees things as having a special relation with people. Latour, as one of the most prominent founders of actor network theory, assumes that although modernity postulated a strict separation between nature and culture, subject and object, matter and discourse, it never really respected it. 
In his work, We Have Never Been Modern, he asserts that the modern dichotomy of the world is a false notion, for we are dealing with hybrid, fen hybrid phenomena in science, art or literature. The separation postulated by modernity presupposed that agency can only be attributed to a human subject who acts intentionally and rationally. This one-sided perspective is now to be abandoned in favor of a symmetrical one in which equal ability to act is attributed to human and non-human beings. Latour was not the first to speak of agency of things. In the 1970s, the psychologist James Gibson pointed to affordances of things which, to put it briefly, are based on the fact that landscapes and things unmediated make their features available to humans. They move people to a concretely performed action without them having reflected on it beforehand. The cup invites, invites people to grasp the handle and drink. The hammer animates people to a specific grasp and a specific movement from top to bottom, and not, for example, to stab. This emphasizes not only the agency of things, but also a kind of relations between things and people. In Pandora's Hope, Latour says that agency does not belong to humans, but is an assembling of actants. All agency is hybrid, in which human and non-human actants are united. If we follow one of Latour's examples behind the production in the factory, there is not simply a human subject, but a collective, which he calls work in factory. Relations between individual actants come to the fore. The human subject is reified and the non-human has agency. An excellent example of the action of such a collective can be seen in Charlie Chaplin's famous film Modern Times, where the main character, played by Chaplin himself, stands at the assembly line and becomes one with the belt and the spanners he holds in his hand automatically executing a movement as if he were tightening the screws. In this sharp critique of the modern production relations, the incorporation of the human into the machine and vice versa, the becoming one of the non-human with the human is also very impressively illustrated. While modern times was a sharp critique of the social circumstances of rapidly industrialized society, Latour sees nowadays in the union of athletes, for example, with their instruments, javelin throwers with the javelin, cyclist with the bicycle, etc., a hybrid union, a collective. As it can be easily seen, this kind of collective is a bundle of relations in permanent emergence and vanishing. Consistently, Latour, against the opinion of traditional sociology, denies any kind of ontological existence of a social entity like society. He speaks of a collective rather as an assembling project of entities that have not yet been interwined. Both human and non-human actors participate in the assembling in a symmetrical relation. The emphasis on the dynamic relations as the only real ones 
leads to the consequence that actors come and go, appear and disappear. Only the actors involved in the action at hand have relevance. Only, the cre only they create the network. As Julie Bates writes, for Latour there are no visible objects and there never have been. When they appear, they become things that co-animate change as actors or mediators. The dynamic design of relations has a fundamental importance for the procedure of exploring assemblings. If there are no given entities that could serve as objects to be explored, one should concentrate on the description of the relations and the transitions. Here we come to the fundamental question whether ANT in general suits for literary studies, and if so, then to what extent? As early as 2004, Latour suggested that critic has lost its epistemological potential and that literature should be accessed through a different approach. What he meant, he laid out more precisely a few years later in his Compositionist Manifesto 2010 and An Inquiry into Moods of Ex Existence 2013. He proposes to replace critic by composition. Quotation, the practitioners of critic are exceptionally skilled at deconstructing and demystifying, seeking to render things less real by underscoring their social constructedness. The idea of composition, by contrast, how Rita Felski puts it out, speaks to the possibility of a common world even if this world can only be built out of many different parts. It is about making rather than unmaking, adding rather than subtracting, translating rather than separating. The point is to describe actors and relations between them, rather than to break down a fiction into separate elements and to draw conclusions. Composition of relation net should now be the goal of reading. Composition is to be understood here as quotation, forging of links between things that were previously unconnected. Interpretation, as it if Seaton sees, becomes an act of co-making that brings new things to light rather than deciphering of repressed meaning or an endless rumination on the deficits or opacities of language. If, in Latour's perspective, there are no given entities that could serve as objects of analytical observation, then the question about communities mentioned in the title of my talk is somewhat premature. One cannot ask about what cannot be perceived, what does not actually exist for the observer. Latour's method presupposes that one includes the broadest possible range of actants in the description. The result is then a composition of relations that needs no further analysis. Insights are supposed to emerge by themselves if one only looks at the actors and their assemblage. Before going into Matthias Choco's work, I would like to briefly discuss two texts that are relevant to poetics of things and think agency. The first one is a poem by Wisława Szymborska, Conversation with the Stone. Some of you can already 
uh, have read it, in which the poet discusses the impossibility of knowing the stone, its essence. She joins the long tradition of thought that probably began with Kant, then leads through the phenomenology to the present discussion of the nature of matter, and which is very skeptical about knowing the essence of things. We lack the sense of taking part, as Szymborska says. All that we can experience is merely the surface of matter. Quotation from this poem, my whole surface is turned toward you, all my insights turned away, says the stone. However, Szymborska does not leave us without hope for a kind of knowing the matter. The stone admits that we have a seat of that sense that it calls imagination. This sense, the imagination, moves the subject of the poem to question the stone. Or is it the stone that causes us to question, to act? It is Latour, but also Gibson think, it is as Latour, but also Gibson think that agency is always a hybrid phenomenon. Agency does not result exclusively from certain features of thing or person. It is the assemblage that gives rise to agency. In a fine way, Franz Holler, a Swiss writer, treats the agency of a stone woven into the story of the universe. In a short story, the stone is artfully evoked the birth of the earth. I'd like to, to, to read some quotations originally in German, but I'm not sure if it, and then translation in English, if it's okay. So, so I start with German version. Etwas platzte, etwas tanzte durch Dunkel, ein Tosen, ein Krachen, ein Rauschen, Sternenherzklopfen, Gestirngelächter, etwas Glom, etwas Kloster, etwas Barst, galaktischer Donner, Zeitgeburt. Etwas wurde herausgeschleudert, etwas ballte sich, etwas drehte sich, etwas kreiste. Da war sie, die Erde, von niemandem gesehen, von niemandem gehört, von niemandem gerochen. And now the English version translated but by Deep L. <laughs> There is no translation uh, of uh, chalk work in English. So. Something burst, something danced through the dark. A roar, a crash, a hiss, starry heartbeat, starry laughter, something glowed, something burst, galactic thunder, time birth. Something was ejected, something clenched, something spun, something circled. There it was, the earth, seen by no one, heard by no one, smelt by no one. Water came, air appeared, millions of years passed by. The surface uh, solidified into a solid mantle, oceans covered it, and again millions of years passed by. Again, quotation, in the water it began to twitch and to wriggle, living things fed on what rocks and water gave off, and on other living things. And After millions and millions of years more, plants and animals unfolded, leaving the waters, mountains emerged. 
a struggle among the giants, nice, granite, slate, limestone, dolomite, their names. Another millions of years, and the first people could turn their eyes to the mountains. Men began to use the mineral resources. Rocks were quarried, transported to the cities, where they were peeled up on heaps. At a May Day demonstration, a boy flees from the approaching policeman. In passing, he grabs a stone from the dump and throws it in the direction of the task force. Unfortunately, he hits a girl who is also fleeing on the head. The girl falls, is taken unconscious to the hospital, where she slowly recovers. For her 18th birthday, she goes out to a lake where she throws the stone she had kept into the water. Quotation. A stone does what is done with it. Now he has arrived at the bottom of the lake. A bit of mud is stirred up, indicating where, it play, where, where its place is now. A stone does not remember. A stone does not dream. A stone does not hope. It cannot even be said that it waits. Although the passivity of the stone is emphasized throughout the story, the opposite is evoked in a very subtle way. The last sentences in which the insensibility of the stone and its inability to act are mentioned are built on a negation that evokes just the opposite. It cannot even be said that it waits, and yet one has the feeling as if the stone is waiting for the next action in which it will be involved together with other actors, be it in a hundred or a thousand years. Matthias Czocke. Things occupy a special place in the work of Matthias Czocke. Czocke, born in 1954, is a versatile artist and writer. He began as an actor when he appeared at the Theater Bochum under the artistic directorship of Peter Zadek. Czocke writes plays, novels and short stories, reportages for the Neue Zürcher Zeitung and made films. He has lived in Berlin for over 30 years. The fact that things play a special role in his work has to do with the fact that Czocke is very critical of discourse, of language. We are caught in the symbolic order, we try to make the best of it, to communicate with each other and to form communities, but basically all our efforts fail, as he thinks. We tell each other stories, but they are either not heard or not understood. For example, he depicts a scene, a scene in his novel Morris with a Chicken, in which Morris sits down on a bench in Nettleback Square and watches with suspicion as quotation, an old man in full pissed pants staggers across the square towards the bench and sits down next to Morris. The old guy begins to tell his stories from the war to which Morris only listens skeptically. After a while, he is taken by the stories, which are not stupid, respectfully tell of the so-called enemies, the Poles and the Russians, who had been great people. 
To Maurice, it seems outrageous that this man has led a whole life and no one wants to listen to him. He will sink into the grave with his conclusions. The same will happen to Maurice. He too will not be heard. He will have similar experiences and draw his conclusions and no one will want to hear them. He sinks then also with his conclusions into the grave. Frightened by these thoughts, he asks himself, why can't we absorb and understand what other, others tell us? The dreary observation goes even further. Quotation. We hear it, of course, but only as words strung together. We do not understand them with our own head. We don't absorb them with our own body. Yes, etc. I should have confessed that to Hamid, when he was talking about dying, which is actually a big thing that we will all think about at some point, that I don't hear him, that I don't see him, that I don't taste him. The end of quotation. An association with the previously mentioned statement in Szymborska's poem about the absence of the sense of taking part cannot be omitted. The physical bodily separation from each other makes it impossible for us to communicate properly, which should be accomplished with all our senses. From this failure of man in communication results Choker's deep skepticism regarding contacts with others. In another scene, two characters living together sit across from each other without exchanging a word. Stand up, clear things from there to there, including some brochures the woman brought from stores. There they find, for example, suggestions on how to live healthily. Probably following one of the advices, Morris suggests visiting someone. Quotation, let us so socialize. It is not good that men should be alone. They then ring an acquaintances, doorbell, sit down stiffly, cautiously slinging to a smile they think they can remember from before, tell stories that played out over a year ago and seem stale to them, now try to listen to the acquaintances, what they learn, and then all is said, not another sentence wants to come out, the head is empty, everyone looks drowning, the eyes emerge from their sockets. One stands up, grabs his umbrella and goes into the night. Both sink into the conviction that social contact is an imposition. In the atomized world, where language cannot be relied upon, things emerge as reliable partners. The so critical statement about the impossibility of real communication is followed by a one-page-long peon to matter, namely to the underwear. I take the liberty of a somewhat longer excerpt from the passage, uh, maybe only in English. It would be nice to hear some German yeah. as well. Okay. So okay. You, I think we have time for both versions. Okay. Yeah. So, 
In Italien und Griechenland tragen alte Leute heute noch Wollunterhemden. Morris hat diese Gewohnheit übernommen. Leibchen ohne Ärmel, herrlich, aus weißer Wolle, die mit der Zeit gelb wird, dann karamellbraun. Unschöne Farben zwar, die aber nichts an der Beschaffenheit der Leibchen ändert. Sie wärmen, saugen Schweiß auf, halten nicht zu warm und legen sich doch jederzeit um ihren Träger. Kaum erhebt sich ein kühler Wind. Sie sind ganz und gar, was sie vorgeben zu sein. Liebe, anhängliche, treue Begleiter. Heute noch kommen sie ihm vor wie Zeugen der Armut und des Unglücks, wenn er sie irgendwo auf einer Wäscheleine entdeckt. Und doch weiß er, dass Unterwäsche etwas von dem ist, was seinen Namen ausfüllt. Große, wahre Gegenstände, die da baumeln, Helden an ihrem Platz, zuverlässige Dinge, die ihren Auftrag niemals verraten, die auf sich bestehen, wie auch Streichhölzer oder Papier niemals mehr sein wollen, als sie sind. And now the English version. In Italy and Greece, old people still wear wool undershirts. Morris has adopted this habit. Bodices without sleeves, gorgeous, made of white wool, which over time turns yellow, then caramel brown. Unattractive colors indeed, but that does not change the nature of the bodices. They warm, absorb sweat, do not keep too warm, and yet wrap around their wearer at any time, as soon as a cool wind rises. They are completely what they pretended to be, dear, affectionate, faithful companions. Even today they seem to him like witnesses of poverty and misfortune when he discovers them on a clothesline line somewhere. And yet he knows that underwear is something of what fills his name. Great, true objects dangling there, heroes in their place, reliable things that never betray their mission, that insist on themselves, just as matches or paper never want to be more than they are. This not wanting to be more than it is, a phenomenologically underpinned reduction to the essence of things appears again and again in prose texts as well as in plays by Chocke. It also forms a basis for the creation of a symmetrical reality in the Laturian sense, where things and people participate equally real in the formation of relations. In such symmetrical assemblages, people are also reduced to their essence. Choke provides an example of this in his play The Eccentrician, so the eccentrics, in which the characters appear without masks which have been scrapped off in a long process. In the play, whose action takes place in the first-class train station Buffett, Baroness, Forster, Judge and Frieda van Graaf meet regularly to pass the time together. They have known each other for years and actually have nothing new to tell each other. Their meetings are characterized by a mindless routine that culminates in the respective answer to waiter's question. What can I get you? 
the usual. Usualness characterizes not only the food, but also the behavior of the participants and the course of the evening. When a stranger named Herzog appears in the restaurant and is also invited by Forrester to join the evening, Baroness snaps. What do you mean? Someone wants to meet us. But I don't want to meet anyone. You know that. What she fears is getting back into the usual rules, putting back on the masks that have already been put away. Quotation, this laborious peeling that lies ahead. No. Among themselves, they have already gone through it, this peeling. Without their masks, they face each other naked in their bare existences, freed from social constraints and beyond the discursive power of language. A newcomer, Herzog, arriving, hooded, masked and armored, threatens to tear them out of their lethargy. A strange community is presented, which a stranger wants to join. He has come to make friends that have become as rare as the bastards. He wants to become a friend of the gutted by drinking the wine that he believes the others will also drink. Quotation. I love the wine from this region, not because it is good, but because it grows here, here where I sus suspect friends who I assume will also drink it. Yes, I secretly hope to become a friend through this wine as well. Quotation end. The reference to wine, which with the space of the restaurant, uh, which with the space of the restaurant, the table at which those scattered seat, advanced to become a mediator, creator of relationships, leads us on to the agency of things. At the very beginning of the novel, Morris with a chicken, a close relationship between the narrator and his apartment is evoked, where the influence of the apartment spaces on the actions of the narrator are presented. In a situation where the narrator has been invited to dinner by his friend and is preparing to go out, it occurs to him how much he would like to stay at home. Quotation. How fresh and good the air smells in a Central European bathroom, I thought. How quietly such an apartment waits for you behind the door with open arms. Surrounded by objects that invite him to stay at home, that become present, emerging from the unobtrusive familiarity at the moment when their handiness is called into question by going out. They become objects of contemplation, of reflection, like a nail in the novel Erzies that bends under Peter's hits. Quotation, the resistance of matter, he laughs grimly and begins to philosophize. Such a crooked nail has triggered quite a few uncouth chunks of thought. I would like to briefly present the agency of the matter with two further examples. The first, of, the first one presents Morris, who is riding on the way to his office after a cyclist who has overtaken him. Morris is enthusiastic about him, 
how skillfully he shapes the way, writes over the most beautiful corners of the city, calls him romantic in his thoughts and want, in his thoughts and wants to address him at the next traffic lights. But, as he says, his nose has been running for some time when he is physically active. With a snot on his upper lip, he does not dare to address the admired cyclist. The encounter does not take place. Two worlds are juxtaposed here. The first, that of the romantic, which alludes to a particular mood of cycling associated with mobility, freedom and sociability. Let us also think of the conditions in Dublin to which Beckett refers for whom cycling was a significant motive when it was culturally symbolic of romance and freedom, as Julie Bates writes. The world of this course, the symbolic order of romantic cycling, is juxtaposed with one of the matter of snot. If one wanted to trace the network of actors, one would have the road, the bicycles, the traffic lights, the cyclists, the idea of cycling that gives one freedom and nowadays inscribes itself in the idea of environmental protection. All these actors contribute to the meeting of the two cyclists and yet an essential actor, the snot on the upper lip, puts a spoke in the wheel the meeting does not happen. A special kind of collective is created in the story The New Neighbor from the collection under the same title. Once again, wine is used, which should also serve here as a mediator, a trigger for the encounter. The first person narrator decides to pay a welcome visit to a new neighbor who has moved in and to do so, he fetches a bottle of wine from the stash and goes up one floor to where the new neighbor lives. <clears throat> a strange situation unfolds. The door is opened. The bottle of wine is handed over and received by the neighbor, who introduces himself as Professor Kai Zer. The narrator is still standing in the stairwell the neighbor in the dark hallway of his apartment. Quotation. He blinks at the bottle as if it is about to make him sneeze. Then he fixes my right eyebrow and says, Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Very thoughtful. Where I grew up in a farming village, it's actually proper for the newcomers to in commerce to make the first move. The reference to his rural ancestry inspires him to spill out his story, with the narrator always standing in the stairwell, merrily listening to occasionally flipping the light switch. Quotation, the light in the stairwell goes out. I wrap my left, left brow in the dark, press the red lighted button beside me and murmur, exactly. The earlier act of the bottle of wine no longer plays a role. In its place is now the light switch, which becomes not only the significant actor of the encounter, but the decisive text structuring element. It is the switch that sets the rhythm of the narrative. Each time the light go out, goes out and the red button is pressed again, the narrative begins anew. Thus, the net is extended by new actors, the reader and the author, 
who both now participate in the creation and spreading of the relations. The expanded net is expressed even more clearly in the already quoted, quoted passage from Erzias with the crooked nail, <coughs> where it is says <coughs> in the sequel quotation, <coughs> How glad I am, I am for the crooked sentences, or rusty sentences, and how ashamed I am of them in public. You beast sentence, you want to expose me to ridicule in front of everyone. I pull it slack, but at home, when I'm alone, I embrace the sentence and give him a kiss. Neither the one nor the other impresses him or pleases him. He is and remains a failed sentence. A sentence that the author and perhaps the reader can snuggle up to in its materiality opens up another dimension of the hybrid collective where a bridge is built between the symbolic order of the action and the materiality of the text and its context. Full in the spirit of Bruno Latour. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.